We're hearing two of Sibelius's greatest tone poems, which both feature some of his finest orchestration, but also they offer two very different takes on what a tone poem can do. The first we're going to hear is one which is very much about moods and impressions. In fact, it's been described as Sibelius's most impressionistic work. The other tone poem is one that tells a story and in some detail, and it may even have a quite serious point to make, what you might call a philosophical point, but more of that when we come to it. First of all, we're going to concentrate on the tone poem called the Oceanides, which Sibelius wrote for an American tour he made in 1914. Although he wrote this piece before he set off to America, he revised it after he'd made the sea voyage. So this is a piece about the sea, which he subsequently revised, having had his first serious experience of an Atlantic crossing. So maybe there were impressions that he received while he was out on the boat in the middle of the Atlantic that he felt just had to be conveyed in music. Anyway, the revised version is a lot different from the original version. It's much more elemental and grand and also much more colourful. The title refers, the Oceanides, to the sea nymphs of ancient Greek myth. But for me, it's not so much a portrayal of kind of mythical beings. What impresses me, I think, and has impressed a lot of other people about the Oceanides, is that it's a wonderful portrayal of the sea itself. The beginning is a beautiful illustration of this. In fact, it's one of my favourite pages in all of Sibelius. It's magical, and at the same time, it's incredibly ingeniously put together. I'll give you the kind of musical basic raw materials first, and then we'll hear the complete picture. You may have noticed that in the orchestra we've got two timpanists, which is rather unusual in a symphony orchestra, certainly unusual for Sibelius, who doesn't usually tend to write for very large orchestras. Now, they set the scene at the beginning. They have roles. Each of them has a role on one, notes a tone apart, but they overlap, and it creates the effect of a kind of deep undulation, a sort of undertow going underneath the surface of the music. something undulating there, like a kind of deep wave tone. And on top of that, in a different kind of rhythm, there's a swaying figure on the first and second violins. First of all, they play together, and then, as you'll hear, they separate, and the lines kind of mirror each other very closely. This is a figure that makes me think of sea mist floating on the surface of the sea that we've just heard that deep undulation in. Well, that seems to be moving in a kind of swaying one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But then Sibelius introduces a new element and a new colour, flutes, and something that sounds as if it could possibly be birdsong. But this is in a quicker one, two, one, two, and it's syncopated so that it tugs against the beat of what we've just heard. It almost feels like it's in a different tempo.
If you put all those three elements together, you get a texture that really does sound as if it's alive on several different levels at the same time. One tempo in the violins, another tempo in the flutes, and a much deeper, slower undertow in the timpani. I don't know what kind of mental picture that conjures up for you, but I find I can't listen to that passage without remembering standing very early one summer morning by a Scottish loch and seeing sea mist floating on the surface just like that and the sun breaking through, the surface of the sea being very calm, but the suggestion that deep underneath it's not calm at all. There are different currents going on under the surface. What seems to happen with this music is that the sun dispels that opening sea mist very quickly. And then there we get the kind of effect of light on waves, which is suggested rather ingeniously by oscillating harp harmonics. Now, harp harmonics are a sound that you get by touching the string with one finger and plucking it very lightly with the other. And so you get this kind of ghostly half tone, and the two harps overlap with each other like this. So that's another very liquid kind of sound that also seems to be happening again at a slightly different tempo from any of the sounds we've heard so far. And then as the light seems to catch the surface of the water more, you hear that flute figure that we heard a moment ago. It really takes wing. It floats off. And the strings begin to move faster, and the main tempo becomes clearer. Maybe this is the suggestion of a boat actually moving uh, through the water. It can be any of these things, though, in a way. There's not one image that one's tied to in this. Anything suggested by the sea, I think, is possible with this music, but it is extraordinarily atmospheric and suggestive. Now there are some more potent sound images. First of all, you'll hear a shudder that seems to start in the depths on the cellos, and then rises up to the violins, who play it more smoothly, and then back down again. Sibelius is playing with these ideas of depth and surface, of darkness and light here in the music. A little later, there's another suggestion of different currents and different things happening at different speeds. The violins and the violas have one undulating figure at the top of the texture. 
Meanwhile, the cellos have the same notes, but they play them in a slower rhythm. And there's a bass pedal underneath, which suggests something moving slower still. And meanwhile, there's yet another kind of undulation going on on the timpani and the harps in harmonics. The harps undulate, the timpani roll on repeated notes. You put those three sounds together, and again, you have a texture that seems to me to be quite visionary. It's like looking into very clear, deep water and seeing different kinds of movements happen at different speeds or in different ways. It's, again, it's a, it's a texture that seems to be alive on several levels at once. Marvellous the way that double bass note just seems to emerge from the shadows of what there was before. Sibelius is marvellous at kind of seamless transitions. You hear one thing and then a little later you're in something else. But you don't always know where the joins are. He's wonderful, as it were, cross-fading between two ideas. So that one moment you know you're listening to one thing, another moment you're listening to something else. But it's very difficult to tell where one sound ends and another one begins. This piece, as you probably have realized, doesn't so much play with distinctive tunes or themes, but with tiny little motives, which don't really develop in the way that motives develop in a symphony. They're more associated with different kinds of moods and textures. Each motive almost seems to come with its own distinctive set of sound colors, so that the change of a motive from one instrumental timbre to another is, is quite an event. It's something dramatic in the course of the piece. Well, Sibelius must have experienced a big range of colors and moods on that 1914 Atlantic voyage because he includes instruments in this orchestra that he doesn't normally include in the orchestra. Having two harps is a remarkable luxury for Sibelius and certainly two timpani as well. But he also uses the Lockenspiel, which is a very rare touch of percussive color in Sibelius, particularly the symphonic music, which is often very austere in its, its orchestration. The glockenspiel appears doubling the oboe and more harmonics on the harp with a very strange and haunting colour. Meanwhile, underneath, what we'll hear first of all are some more string tremolos. At first, they're just suggesting passing tremors on the surface, or maybe deeper. But then, they begin to stabilise into a more regular pattern. You can sense the waves of the sea are beginning to build, and it's through this that this extraordinary flicker of light on the glockenspiel happens. undulation isn't gently and floating on the surface, it's actually going deeper, it's actually coming from deeper within the element of the sea. 
And later, as you hear this figure rise again, you'll notice the trombones beginning to play chords, very slow held chords, which is often a sound Sibelius uses to suggest something incredibly powerful and elemental in his music. I think you can suggest that there's some rather threatening, rather, rather, rather menacing weather, I think, brewing in the background here. Shame to have to cut it off in mid-process like that. And uh, Although it's fascinating when you hear the extraordinary dissonance that that passage ends on. Sibelius's music seems very familiar and romantic and tonal in its harmonic language, but often there are really quite extraordinary harmonic clashes going on under the surface in this music, which is one of the ways in which he manages to say that's that extraordinary elemental tension at the heart of this music. Well, out of that passage, there does grow a pretty terrific elemental storm passage, one of the most powerful of these in Sibelius's music, one of those that has, where you, you sense in Sibelius's portrayal of nature that he has an almost religious feeling for it, as though something in the sound or the, the power of nature is representative of the voice of God. And in fact, in many of his own diaries, he does talk about God and nature and music as being connected in this way. But I think the full effect of that climax, we really have to hear it in the complete performance, which we'll, we'll hear in a moment. So I'll leave it to you to make up your own mind as what you make of Sibelius's sound images, whether this suggests C to you and detail, or whether it's more a question of a general impression, or whether indeed it suggests something to you completely different. So it's time now, I think, to hear a complete performance of Sibelius's tone poem, The Oceanides, performed by the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Tequin Evans. Sibelius's tone poem, The Oceanides, performed by the BBC Philharmonic, conducted by Tequin Evans. Well, now for a very different kind of tone poem indeed, Sibelius's symphonic fantasy, Pochula's Daughter. Now, this was written eight years before The Oceanides, that's in 1906. And this time, the music comes with an accompanying story. In fact, to stress this, Sibelius had printed a verse form of his narrative in the score. It appears on the title page. 
And the story is taken from the Finnish national epic called the Kalevala. There's a collection of, of verse accounts of some of the ancient archetypal stories of the heroes of the Finnish people. And one of its greatest heroes is a wizard by the name of Vainamainen. Vainamainen is on his way home from the sunless northlands of Finland, and believe me, they really can be sunless but this time of year, when he suddenly sees the beautiful maiden of Pohila, Pohila's daughter, and she is spinning, she's sitting and spinning on top of a rainbow. So she's obviously a girl who knows how to make an entry. Um, not surprisingly, Vainamainen tries to woo her, and she replies that she'll come down if he can perform a series of impossible tasks, like making a boat from the fragments of her spindle. And I think, according to the Kalevala, one of the tasks she set him is to tie an egg in invisible knots, which sounds to me like it's as good as saying, push off. But Vainamainen doesn't read the message she's trying to tell him, and he tries with all his magical powers, and apparently very nearly kills himself in the process. And finally, he admits defeat, and to her mocking laughter, he goes off into the darkness, muttering to himself. Well, it's amazing how much of this story you can actually follow quite closely in Sibelius's music. At the beginning, there's a wonderful depiction of those dark, northern, sunless lands from which Vainamainen emerges on his journey, the far north. There's some beautiful, somber-colored, dark, deep bass chords You'll hear at the beginning the bassoons, the contrabassoon, horns, and cellos divided into four parts, on top of which a cello solo ruminates gloomily. And this is completed by another bass color, which follows immediately afterwards, the solo bassoon. It's wonderful how Sibelius shades all these nocturnal, northern, dark colours. The bass clarinet takes up the melody, and then it's doubled by one bassoon, and then two, and then by a contrabassoon as well, so that the colour remains dark, and yet it's always changing, it's always shifting. Why is that so unmistakably Nordic? I suppose it must be something to do with that extraordinary portrayal of darkness. But now, out of the gloom, a figure begins to emerge. It's Vainamainen clearly on his sleigh, and the music begins to pick up momentum.
So we've got the movement of the sleigh in that regular repeated figure that the violins were playing, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, which goes on in the background. And on top of that emerges a wonderful oboe tune. It's one of those tunes which, once you've got it in your head, you just can't get it out. I know I shall be singing it all the way home tonight. Uh, this, you can feel, maybe stands for the figure standing on top of the sleigh, while the movement of the sleigh is suggested by the strings underneath. Craggy brass figure clearly stands for the hero himself in mid-glory, perhaps in the midst of some sort of self-celebration. But if you thought we cut that music off rather suddenly at the end, that's actually what Sibelius does, because Weinemeinen is in, in mid-glory, is suddenly thrown by a sudden vision. The texture changes completely, the harmony changes, then we have oboe, corps anglais, harp and high strings, then flute and clarinets. This is definitely, clearly, Pochula's daughter herself sitting on her rainbow. We'll take it from just before the end of the last act, so you can hear how she literally stops Weinemeinen in his tracks. Well, the next passage sounds very much to me like this is Weinemann pleading with the girl to come down and join him. You hear a striving bass voice, very obviously a male voice in the bass instruments below, and then what sounds to me pretty clearly like the girl's mockery on high woodwind, and then icy serenity on the harp following that.
There's a long, dramatic crescendo after that, which seems to me to stand for Zweinemeinen's struggle to work those impossible spells that she's set him as her challenge. But then, at the climax, after this passage is built and built and built, that mocking high woodwind figure returns with a much more shrill and derisive quality to it the second time. And if it sounds vaguely familiar, in fact, I know several people who said it reminds them of the stabbing motif from the shower scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Well, I know that Bernard Herrmann, who wrote the score for Psycho, was a great admirer of Sibelius, so may he, maybe he made a mental note when he heard this piece the first time round that that might be useful in some other context. Anyway, following that, there is a thrilling climax, and you hear that oboe theme, which I said stood for Weiner Minor, return on the horns. It's drawn out this time and becomes still grander. And you can hear the, the music, as it were, disappearing into the distance. But you, there's a very clear moment in the midst of all this struggle and, and elemental drama when you can quite definitely hear the clarinet mocking in the background. I wonder if this is the girl's final sort of laughter at Weinemeinen as he disappears into the distance, followed by brass and surging strings, which seem to be all too clearly to register his frustration and his rage. <laughs> Now, if that theme, that craggy brass theme, does stand for Weinemein, and then perhaps at this point he is trying, as the poem in the score suggests, to hold up his head again with some, and recover some measure of self-respect. But what happens to the music and what happens in Sibelius's poem are rather different at this point, or that's how it seems to me. There's an elemental climax, and a heroic theme starts up on the strings and the horns, but then it all seems to collapse and the texture thins out, and the music becomes misty and enigmatic and dark again. I don't know what Sibelius had in mind as he wrote the music at this point. The poem, as I said, seems to suggest that the hero goes off with some of his composure recovered to fight and woo another day. But the way that the music dissolves at the end suggests something different to me, and I wonder how you hear it, because it sounds to me much more like a kind of icy defeat with Weinemeinen going off into the distance with his tail between his legs.
What a strange, enigmatic ending. That is indeed how Pocola's daughter finishes. But I can remember the first time I heard the piece, being absolutely riveted and fascinated by the three notes the cellos played at the end. At the end, they just seemed so right, and I couldn't work out why. Then when I got the score and began to investigate, I discovered why. This is a rather fascinating thing about Pocola's daughter. Sibelius is normally very classical in his attitude to key, to tonality. If he starts in a key, he usually ends in it. He's usually committed to one key throughout, or well, certainly a home key that unifies a piece of music. In this respect, he's very unlike his Danish contemporary and friend Carl Nielsen, who invented the idea of progressive tonality. In other words, moving from one key to another becomes a kind of story, a drama, and where you end up could be very different from where you started. But Pochela's daughter, unusually for Sibelius, starts in one key and ends in another one. Um, if you remember the beginning, those very dark woodwind chords that we heard, woodwind and horn chords at the beginning with the cellos divided, they spelt out very clearly the key of G minor. But the piece ends in B flat. And those last three notes on the cello spell out the tonal journey that the whole piece has taken from that G we heard at the beginning to the B-flat with which it ends. So in just three notes, the three mysterious notes are kind of summary of the tonal harmonic journey that this extraordinary piece of music has taken. Maybe it's also to be seen as a kind of summary of the journey and maybe also of Weinemeinen's valuable learning experience that he can't have every woman that he wants. But I wonder if there's more to it, because I was fascinated to discover when I started to investigate Pochola's daughter that actually this music wasn't originally conceived, or not all of it was originally conceived, to illustrate the story that Sibelius prints in the beginning of the score. At first, he thought of giving the piece a very different title, and it's a rather interesting title. He thought of calling it A Hero's Life which suggests a clear parallel to Richard Strauss's then world-famous tone poem, Ein Heldenleben, which also means a hero's life. But whereas in Strauss's poem, the hero is clearly himself portrayed in the most flattering possible terms, and whereas although Strauss's self-hero goes through some struggles on the way, he ends in splendid triumph and vindication, Sibelius's hero ends in defeat and possibly humiliation, as we've heard at the end. It's not even what you'd call a tragic failure. It's not a dignified failure like the magnificent catastrophic ending of Mahler's Sixth Symphony. It's mysterious, emptied, and possibly even humiliated. Well, I wonder if Sibelius is possibly trying to tell us something about the limitations of male heroism, or indeed of the power of a woman to crush a man. Sibelius had been a fabulous, a notorious womanizer in his youth. In fact, one friend in their Vienna conservatory days described him as the biggest skirt chaser in Austria. That's an almost literal translation of the German. But as so often with so many philanderers, his conquests never seemed to have made him lastingly happy, and the rejections that he experienced on the way were very painful. So it's possible that Sibelius, who was then entering his 40s as he wrote Pochola's Daughter, was beginning to wonder if he had more in common with the aging Weinemeinen who's spurned by the woman on the rainbow than he would like to admit. 
Or it's possible that maybe he wasn't thinking in quite such personal terms. Maybe this is conceived perhaps as a critique of romanticism, a romantic notion of heroism. After all, Strauss's tone poem was only 10 years old when this one came out. It was still new, it was still an audacious modern kind of music, and the idea of heroism, endorsed by the philosophy of Nietzsche, was still very current and very much in vogue. Maybe Sibelius conceived this work, which he originally thought of calling a hero's life, as a kind of critique of the optimism, the naive optimism included in the sort of romantic male notion of heroism. Well, that's plenty to think about, or you may not want to think about any at all and just enjoy the marvellous colours and wonderful themes and tremendous sense of gripping elemental drama, again, that Sibelius gets in this piece. So here then is Sibelius's depiction of what we might call heroic failure. His tone poem, Pochula's Daughter, played by the BBC Philharmonic, conducted by Tequin Evans. <laughs> 